Well, it's a good thing we have that addition going up because uh, we're going to need more space. More and more kids go throughout that door at Children's Church time. It's such a sight to see. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, verses uh, 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Paul writes these words. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwelling in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The unfolding of God's word gives light. It gives understanding even to the simple. Would you pray with me one more time before the ministry of the word? Father, we do come here this day and ask, uh, as you do for us Sunday after Sunday, that you would speak to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that your love would work its way into our hearts like a, a root of a great oak tree works its way into the cracks in a rock. And there it grows strong and breaks that rock into pieces. So may your love do in our hearts. I ask that we would hear your voice this day. And that we would recognize it as that best of all voices that we have ever heard. May we rejoice in what you have to say to us. May we take it to heart. May we meditate on it. And may it change the way that we live and the way we approach life. And in all of that, Lord, we ask that you would be exalted. That you would be lifted up. And that we might make a difference for good in our world. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen. So one of my uh, favorite television shows, and I, I don't have many, was Monk. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. I really didn't discover it until its last couple of seasons, although Ann and I did manage to uh, catch all the reruns. But it's about a, 
a man who's a brilliant detective in spite of the fact that he suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder, which was made worse by the murder of his wife. And the plots, plots are pretty much standard detective fare, but the, the character development was really wonderful. And the more you watched it, the more you appreciated it. And I don't know that the show so much aimed at getting laughs. I really don't think it did uh, originally in the beginning, but the humor was there rising simply out of the persona of the characters. And in my estimation, the longer that show ran, the more delightful the comedic aspect became. And it was exactly the kind of thing that always made me laugh. I'm really sorry there aren't any new episodes, though. In my mind, I've written a full-length sequel, which will probably remain there in my mind. Uh, But uh, for those of you who are fans, I'll tell you that in my movie, Dale the Whale plays a really prominent part. Anyway, in one of the episodes, uh, Monk is, as usual, investigating a murder. And at one point, he suspects that the mayor is the perpetrator. It turned out that it was a false lead, but he happened to be in City Hall when this particular revelation came to him, and he wanted to tell Captain Stottlemyre, and he understood the delicate nature of the situation. So he pulls the captain aside to whisper his suspicions to him. But you and I... watching the show, saw that in the previous scene, that very spot where Monk has pulled the captain to, where he's standing and began talking to the captain, was called the whispering spot. And anyone standing on the other side of that dome-shaped worm could hear the whispers made over there quite clearly. And it just so happened that all of the reporters were gathered there at that other spot, and they heard it all. And given Monk's reputation as a detective, they ran with the story. Now, as I said, the mayor was wasn't guilty and Monk solved the case and the real murderer was caught and it all turned out well. But that episode made me wonder, was there really places like that, like those whispering spots? And it turns out there are. I I could find three of them at least, but none of them matched Monk's uh, setting. One of those places is in Grand Central Station in New York City. And if you stand at just the right place at a wall there and you whisper, you can talk out loud, but if you whisper, that sound kind of travels up and across that dome-shaped roof to another spot on the other side, and a person standing there can hear you clearly just as if you were standing right next to them. But nobody in between, all those people moving in the Grand Central Station wouldn't hear a word that was said. And that's really, I think, kind of neat. Yeah, it only works, however, if both people are standing in the right spots. Another way of saying that is they have to be in the proper relationship to one another. But if they are, one person can speak and the other one can hear just as clearly, as I've already said, as if they were standing right next to one another. Now, something similar to that is operating when we're seeking God's will, whether we're talking about that kind of overarching theme that we refer to as God's will for our lives. And you know the kinds of things that I'm referring to. Am I supposed to be a missionary or a mathematician? Am I to get married? 
Or am I supposed to stay single? Or the smaller expressions of that will, which we look for in the daily twists and turns of our existence, where we're asking questions like, should I take that new job, even though it means I have to move away? Or does God want me to serve him by serving the children in our Awana program? And what would I do there? What would he want me to do if I did that? So we've been taught, and the scriptures really affirm, that God really does have a plan for our lives. And so it's really quite normal for us to want to know what that plan is. And in our best moments, we want to be in God's will. At least we think we do. Sometimes when we discover what his will is in a particular situation, we're not so sure. But even there, Christ is our example as he knelt in that garden and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Christ always sought the will of the Father, and there in that garden he gave up his own heartfelt desire, exchanging it for the Father's will and showing us the way. And wow, his words have inspired many a believer to take up his or her cross. Still, it's easier to talk about wanting God's will for our lives than to put ourselves in a place where we may actually discover what it is. And if we really want to be in God's will, if we really want to know what is is for both the big and picture and the smaller clips, we, we must be in the right relationship with him. And we talked about that the last time we were together, when we were together last week. And one of the things we noted was that God wants all people everywhere to be saved. To, he wants them all to come to know him as their personal Lord and Savior. That is his will. And that's really the beginning of a positive relationship with him. The relationship of those on the outside is not the kind that you want to have with a living God. When you're on the outside, you're on the wrong side, and therefore you stand under condemnation of your maker. You don't have to stay there. God doesn't want you out there. He wants you to come home to him. But the choice is yours to make. And if you're here today and you haven't yet done so, if you haven't made that choice, I would encourage you to do so while you still can. We also said last week that if you're on the right side, once you are there, once you have put your faith in what Christ did for you on that cross, there were certain things which we refer to as aspects of a relationship which God uses to reveal his will to us. And we made the observation that these things that we're talking about aren't tools which we use to get at God's will. Rather, they're all part of a relationship, an ongoing relationship with a living God through which he communicates his plan to us. And the first and most obvious one, which we talked about last week, was the word of God itself. So God speaks his word to us, but he does so in relationships. You see, God's word's not like a fortune cookie or an astrology column in the newspaper, which pretends to tell you what's going to happen next. It's not even like a stock market analyst's report, which we consult and then make the best decision we can. You see, We're looking and we're talking about God's word, his inerrant, inspired word. And it's true in all of its claims. And it's given to all people in all the world throughout all time. And any legitimate understanding of that word would be the same for all people. There is no private interpretation of scripture. 
And yet, as we grow in our faith and our relationship with God, he uses that very same word, and I don't know a better way to, to uh, say it, but to say he impresses certain things on our hearts through it. We hear his voice speaking specifically to us about some issue. All people would see the same kind of thing in it, but for them it, it isn't personal. For example, maybe you're reading in the book of Daniel where Daniel is confessing the sins of the nation and you know that right then God is speaking to you, telling you that, that what's troubling your heart, that what's been standing in your way is your sin and you, you need to confess it. And you know it as sure as you know anything else. And that happens to many people over and over again but only as you're walking with God. See, the God who spoke worlds into existence still speaks today through his words. And the one who is in that ongoing relationship with him hears God when he speaks. Today, we want to look at another aspect of our relationship with God through which he reveals his will. And again, this is part of this ongoing bond with God, and if this isn't present, then we're not likely to hear his voice even in his word. At the very least, our, our uh, discourse will be interrupted. It'll be disrupted rather than free flowings. And we may understand what the word means, but not quite recognize its import to us at that time. So this connection that we're, we're talking about, we're going to consider this morning, could certainly be described as spatial. That is, we can point to a certain location associated with it. That's not all there is to it. There is much more than that, but there's not less. And it's like that whispering spot when we're there. We're in that location. We're in the right spot. And God, who is always in the right spot, can speak to us. And though no one else may hear what he says when he does, we hear him because we are right where we need to be. The place where we need to be, this spatial location, is the church. And the passage that's going to help us to understand that is found in Acts uh, chapter 13 and the first three verses, and you can join me there, or it'll be up on the screen on either side of me. Now, what I want to do is I simply want to begin by reading what Luke has written here. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lysias of Cyrene, Manian, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, that really are a number of things that we can know from this passage, and the first one of which I will only mention in passing, because I intend to come back to it on another day. But prayer is another of those aspects of our relationship 
with God through which he reveals his will. Now, most Christians know that. Uh, they understand this is an essential element in discovering God's will for their lives, and they make at least an attempt to pray for guidance. And we'll have more to say about that at another time. For right now, what I want to do is I simply want to look at the very first few words of our passage, where it says, now in the church at Antioch. See, many of you have heard uh, of the term the universal church. And the idea is, is that that church is made up of only believers. But it's made up of all believers in all places and throughout time. And so we could equate that universal church with the bride of Christ in the book of the Revelation. And it's a great term, I think, and it conveys important truths to us, but there's more yet to say. You see, that universal church is expressed locally. We see it there in Antioch. Um, Paul wrote to another one of those expressions of the local church in Corinth, and another in Ephesus, and still another in Colossae. John wrote to the seven different local expressions of that universal church when he penned the book of Revelation. In our day, why Bible church is a local expression of that church. It's not the only one, thank God it's not the only one, but we are one of them and we thank God that we are one of those local expressions. We are, of course, an imperfect expression of it, as was the church at Antioch or Ephesus or any other one that was named in the Bible or in in our own day or down through the ages. And yet, for all of our imperfections, we are God's church. We are the local expression of the body of Christ, and God expects each of his children to be part of such a church. I have to tell you the evidence that this is overwhelming. It's almost painful for me to try to enumerate that for you. But in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, those who came to faith were added to the number. And the one doing the adding was God. It doesn't say that is specifically in the text. In the Greek, it's in the passive form. But it really can mean no one else. And those who were being added were being added to that small little congregation that went there in Jerusalem. And then they grew by the thousands. And it was to that church in Jerusalem that the church in Antioch later appealed for guidance in addressing a doctrinal divide. And virtually every letter Paul wrote was to a particular church or it dealt with church matters. Peter addressed the elders of the church and John's letters assume the concept of the church so well that he he, uh, can personify it and refer to it as the lady. The writer of Hebrews warns us against giving up the meeting together of ourselves as some did in his own day and he tells us that we have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. The apocalypse was addressed to the churches and Jesus stood among the churches and it was to the pastors of those churches that he spoke and everyone is instructed to hear what the spirit says to those churches. Jesus established the church. He builds the church. He owns the church. He leads it to victory. Jesus died for the church as Paul tells us in Ephesians and Jesus is the head of the church, his body as again the apostle says in Colossians. 
When we gather together here as a church, we really get more than we could expect, humanly speaking. God is in our midst here in a way that he is not at other places and times. We are, as Peter tells us, being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood where we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. We are, to repeat what we've already mentioned, the body of Christ and Jesus at the head. We are intimately connected to him through the church, and we grow up together as a church into maturity. There is no institution or organization in all the world that can be compared to it. No term can describe it. It is a church. It's the body of Christ, a spiritual house, and there is nothing else like it. Now, there are those in our day who believe that the church has outlived its time. Some, like Harold Camping, that well-known date-setter whose predictions never proved true, told people through the radio uh, program and system that he had to leave their churches because he said God already had. And he was as wrong about that as he was about the date of Christ's return. Others have abandoned it to pursue what they think is a better course, as though Christ Jesus himself had been mistaken, as though Jesus had turned his back on his own promise to build his church with the gate of hell will not prevail against. It's not so. Jesus remains faithful. He still builds his church. He still works in them and through them. We can count on it. We have his word on it. And so when we're part of a church, we're in the place where we may hear God's voice most clearly, as if we were standing in that right place, in that whispering spot. That's really what happened there in Acts, in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were part of that church, and we read in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That's not the will of God for them. I don't know what would be. They were in the right place and so they could hear God speak. And it wasn't just Barnabas and Paul who heard. Everyone else did too. I don't want you to misunderstand me. It's not that God never speaks to you outside the walls of this building. It's not that he only speaks to you when we're assembled together. Rather, it's because we're part of a local expression of the body of Christ that God speaks to us whether we're assembled here or whether we're dispersed as salt in the world. There really is no way around it. God expects people to be part of a local church, and if we're to be in a right relationship with him, we'll obey him in that matter. You don't have to be a part of this one. You need to be a part of some local church. Now, I know that's not a simple thing. I, I know that. Being a part of a church means being involved in the lives of other people, and people are, as you very well know, not perfect. We all um, have all sorts of bumps and knobs and sharp edges and rough surfaces and being part of a congregation means that from time to time you rub up against those imperfections. As one wag put it, uh, the church would be a great place if it weren't for the people. (laughs) But that's just it, isn't it? 
It's all about the people whom Christ died for. It's as we love those knobby people that we demonstrate that we really are followers of Christ. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you're going to be in a right relationship with God, you, you are going to be in a relationship with other people. You're going to be part of his church, and you are going to invite others into the kingdom. There's no way around it. If you really desire God's will for your life, you don't want that way around it. You will embrace it as a gift from your heavenly Father. And when you're part of a church, you are in the place where you are most likely to hear God's voice. And if you want to discover what his plan for your life is or for your day-to-day experience, then you need to yield this to this part of his will and be part of the church. Now, there's another thing I want to note from uh, this passage that I think helps us understand what it means to be a part of the church. You see, Saul and Barnabas were not merely members of the church at Antioch. They were involved there. They served the church. They were among the prophets and the teachers there. And when they were sent out uh, by the church, it was for the express purpose of bringing others to the faith. They continued to serve God and his universal church and the church at Antioch as they sought the lost and established other congregation. They were active members of the church at Antioch. And really, the New Testament doesn't recognize any other kind. And many churches today meet together, and they have 10 or maybe 20 people show up on a Sunday morning, but their roles number in the hundreds. Being on such a roll means nothing, not to those who are on that roll or to those who maintain it. The only role that really counts is the one that's kept in heaven. Salvation is not a fire insurance policy. Being a member of the church is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Either we have a real relationship with God or not. Either we are serving in the local church or not. Those are the only options. There really is no middle ground. Now, we all know it, but I still have to say this. Serving in a local church doesn't mean you have to be a prophet or a teacher. There are all kinds of ways we may be involved within our church. Barnabas and Saul were involved in the way they were because that's the way God made them and he called them to that. Yet the scriptures teach us that every person who puts their faith in Christ receives spiritual gifts. At at the very least, one such gift, and it is by using those gifts that we best serve the church. I know something, and you do too, and that is that some people are still looking for their gift. They, they, they say they don't know what it is. And I don't want to discourage anybody from looking, but, but maybe it's just possible that you have too narrow a definition or understanding of what a spiritual gifts are. See, I would define spiritual gifts this way. I'd say that it's any ability or capacity you have that you can use to encourage other people in the faith. For all the gifts were given to the church to build others up. I want to say that again. A spiritual gift is any ability or capacity you have that you can use to encourage other people in their faith. And yeah, that's true even when it employs natural talents which were given to you at birth. For example, 
I've always had some ability when it comes to using words. And when God called me to the ministry, that ability was sanctified in order that I could be used by God for the building up of the church as a pastor. The same kind of thing is true for those who have musical ability. That gift is sanctified as they help people to worship the living God. And that same kind of thing is true even for those less obvious things you do. So are you a mother who loves her children and tries to bring them up into faith? Are you not serving God and the church by doing so? Are you a father who loves his wife and provides for his family and sets an example and gives to the church? Don't you serve too? Certainly you can do more. As a mother, you know how to love children. And there are children here that need your love, even if they're loved by their own mothers. Merely, don't you rejoice when some other person, adult, comes and loves your children and points them in the right direction? You realize, don't you? You just can't do it on your own. You need all the help you can get. And so do others. Your love, you can love their children. You can serve in the nursery or as a helper at Awana or at a VBS or in many other ways. You can encourage, you can reach out, you can help, you can pray for those mothers and children who are struggling. As a father, you set example for children, for your own children. You can do the same here as you... As you interact with people, as you talk with others, as you interact with men and women and children and even your own family. There are those here who could use help with a car or a house or a child. You are a child of the living God. You're sought and you're light. How can you not make a difference by the very way you live? And you too can serve in the nursery. Are you men, any of you, too good to do that? You too can help at a one or VBS. You know what both boys and girls desperately need? They need to see men serving, not just as elders or deacons or pastors, but as Sunday school teachers, helpers in the youth group, or listening to verses on Wednesday night. And doing that, they demonstrate in those simple acts that the faith is real and it's for real men and that they love God and they'll do anything he calls them to. There are people who serve behind the scenes in both the sound booth, baking cookies, chopping wood, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick and needy. They send cards, make telephone calls, and they pray. And though the world around them doesn't notice anything they do, God does. And it is worth a great deal in his sight. You know, if you want a category to put all those things in, you could sort them into the gifts of helps or the gifts of faith or even of administration. I think, for example, that the gift of faith is so misunderstood among Christians. It, like all other gifts, is given in order to build up the church. Often it's defined as having such a strong faith that you can weather whatever disaster God might rain on you. Uh, And really, such a faith is impressive. It does encourage. But you know what? The gift of faith is better understood this way. It means living your life, living out your faith in such a way that it inspires 
the faith of others. I've known many people with that gift. My grandmother lived in such a way that she wanted what she had. Sam and Flossie Gersh from my home church. Missionaries of Ghana and Nigeria for 40 years had a faith that it was so real you felt like you could reach out and touch it. Our beloved Gary Berger lived his faith and inspired others to greater heights and to want more. And our sweet Barbara Neal and our kindness points past herself. The God she loves and serves. I'm sorry. Maybe you don't know what your gift is. Don't let it stop you. Do something. <laughs> if it's not a good fit, you'll discover it. Others can help point you in the right direction. Sure. Charlie, God is going to guide you as you seek to serve him. Maybe you just need to ask him to open your eyes to see how you're already serving him, at least in part. So we come back to this question. Do you want to know God's will? It's discovered only in relationship with him. He speaks through his word to us as we're bonded to him. And we can hear his voice when we're in the right place. When we're a part of a local expression of that universal church, employing the gifts that God gives each of us, and trying to serve God and others in that place. So one last thought, I want to close with this. Um, you know, that illustration of the whispering spot has a little more behind it than may, we might at first imagine. There's an incident in the life of Elijah that helps us to understand that. First Kings chapter 19, we read this account. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected, rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah knew God's voice was in the whisper. We may have been tempted to think it was in the windstorm or the earthquake or the fire, but it wasn't. It was in the whisper. That's the kind of thing we learn when we're in God's word and when we walk with God's people serving in his church. So it is in our day. God speaks in a whisper, but he speaks. He reveals, he leads, and he guides. God is still speaking. He who spoke the words into the existence, in our day, he still speaks. The question for us once again is, 
Are you listening? Are you listening? Would you pray with me? Father, I'm I'm just rejoicing um, who you are and uh, how patient you are with us, how often we get it wrong and get the cart before the horse, so to speak. And yet you're always there, you're patient, and you teach us and you guide us, and you lead us along, you draw us along with those cords of loving kindness. Thank you for that. Thank you that you offer yourself to us each and every day to be our Heavenly Father, our Savior, our God, and our guide. Teach us how to walk with you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.